0: Hi everybody, I'm Ashwin. And I'm Eddie. And this is Blood Cancer Talks. Uh, this is a podcast exclusively dedicated to hematologic malignancies, where we bring content experts who live and breathe a particular disease and focus on latest advances in biology and clinical management. Today, we are excited to talk about a top 10 myelod abstracts at American Society of Hematology annual meeting in 2022. We have an expert, Dr. Anand Patel, who is the Assistant Professor of Medicine at University of Chicago. He's also the Director of Inpatient Leukemia Service. Anand, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Before we start, can you tell us about yourself and your clinical and research focus?
1: I wanna start by saying Ashwin and Eddie, thanks so much for the very kind invitation. Big fan of blood cancer talks. So uh, it's a dream come true to be joining a podcast with y'all. Um, So, uh, and thank you so much for the kind introduction. Uh, As Ashwin said, my name is Anand Patel. Uh, I'm a member of the Leukemia and Myeloid Malignancy Group at the University of Chicago. Um, I'm a clinical investigator uh, focused on uh, myeloid malignancies and acute leukemias um, uh, and really designed in the running of of early phase trials, uh, uh, looking at the use of novel therapeutics. Uh, And I have a particular interest in in high-risk myeloid malignancies And that kind of spans the breadth of advanced MPNs, MDS, and acute myeloid leukemia.
0: Thank you, Anand, and thank you so much for being a a listener to our podcast. All right, let's jump right in. Uh, So the first abstract we want to talk about is the ASAP trial, uh, which was uh, presented at the uh, plenary session at ASH annual meeting. So this abstract it's um, in patients with relapsed refractory AML, where sequential conditioning and immediate allot results, um, where they had similar overall and leukemia-free survival, um, like compared to intensive remission induction chemotherapy followed by allo transplant. So this is a phase three trial. So i will present the study anand and then maybe you can review um, the results so this is a randomized clinical trial where they looked at um, induction chemotherapy before allo transplant whether that will deepen the remission versus patients directly proceeding to the allo i think this is a question we always struggle with whether how deep the remission needs to be before we proceed with allotransplant. So this is a randomized trial where they initially randomized two arms. One is um, a remission induction strategy versus other is the disease control strategy. So remission induction strategy is where they gave chemotherapy until the blast percentage is less than 5%. And if they're available, if there is a donor available, they proceeded with allo transplant. And the other is the disease control strategy, where uh, the patients did not um, get the key, get the chemotherapy, or they were not in remission, but they proceeded with allo transplant if they have a donor available. So it's a randomized to one thirty-seven patients in the remission induction strategy, and in the disease control strategy, they had one thirty-nine patients. And the primary endpoint was DFS, disease-free survival, uh, at day fifty-six, and it was uh, not diff- no different in the uh, uh, DFS. And the median follow-up of seven, 37 months. The overall survival was 72% in the uh, remission induction strategy versus 69.1 in the disease control strategy. So the conclusion of this abstract was disease control strategy, which is the patients who had uh, they had the disease going towards transplant, may be preferred treatment option for those patients if a stem cell donor is available. So Anand and our does this study challenge the concept that, you know, complete blast eradication is necessary for optimal control with the transplant?
1: Great summary, Ashwin. And I applaud being able to pull off a randomized study in this space. Whenever you're thinking about the timing of transplant, the utilization of transplant, uh, those are very hard trials to pull off. I would stop short of saying this is a disease that that definitively tells us that disease control prior to transplant uh, is not necessary. I think where we have lots of questions is uh, you know when we're talking about disease control, what does that mean? Uh, we in the in the world of myeloid malignancies, we're starting to kind of sort of catch up to to our colleagues over on the ALL side of things in terms of being able to develop robust means of monitoring. Measurable residual disease, uh, and at least kind of in, in using that paradigm, we know that MRD negativity prior to transplant uh, tends to associate with improved outcomes post-transplant. So, the things that stand out to me about this study is in the in the remission induction strategy arm. Uh, you know, those those patients are treated as a whole, and their outcomes are looked at as a whole because that's where the randomization happened. However, what we don't know is in patients that, that actually did receive uh, uh, that second round of intensive chemotherapy and did achieve, uh, whether it be a morphologic CR or perhaps even a deeper CR than that prior to transplant, do those patients have uh, uh, even better outcomes than what we saw uh, uh, in both the, the disc arm and the wrist arm as they're, uh, as they're shortened in the abstract? The second question I ask myself is, Are, you know, in the era of current myeloid therapies, uh, so kind of thinking about 2017 and onwards at least when we think about several uh, uh, FDA approved medications in the United States, do we have better means of achieving a a remission with use of second line therapies, third line therapies, et cetera, that aren't necessarily uh, intensive induction chemotherapy like uh, approaches? Uh, For example, you know, should we be thinking about the use of hypomethylating agent plus venetoclax as a second-line strategy with response rates of around 30 to 40%, depending on the the retrospective studies that you look at uh, uh, and outcomes being uh, favorable in those that ultimately uh, achieve a CR and go on to receive a transplant? Uh, We now have our targeted drugs. Uh, You know, there's even uh, different combinations that are being tested by way of targeted drug plus venetoclax. Uh, so, so those are the those are the caveats that I think uh, make me still kind of think of and and kind of uh, I'll admit up front my bias is the better disease is controlled going into transplant, uh, the better the outcomes will be long term, uh, and I think there's there there isn't enough in this study for me to to move away from that bias uh, is is how I would put it.
0: Yeah, excellent points, Anand. I think uh, one thing which you eloquently highlighted as well is uh is the regimens they use in the reinduction, um especially if the patient still had persistent blast, you know they use the same hidac plus anthracycline perhaps changing something like flag-based regimens which is u- using fludarabine, rsc and gcsf um, regimens might perhaps change um the way we think about it and and again other point you mentioned is our transplanters will feel more comfortable um, if we get the patient to MRD clearance uh, prior to transplant to have a better outcome post transplant. This is an excellent study. Um, it's a it's a, I think like you said, we'll applaud the authors for doing a randomized study uh, to answer this question. yeah Eddie- the,
1: the, the one thing I'll oh sorry, go ahead, Eddie.
2: I oh, know I'm just the uh, passenger lymphocyte in this discussion, but I did, I did want to ask you kind of a, a couple of questions about this particular trial um, and and first one was around the definition of a poor responder they they defined it as 5% or more blasts on day 15. And I, I wanted your thoughts kind of generally about the utility of day, day 15 marrows, and then specifically in, in this trial to to define poor responders and, and whether there's kind of people in that group that actually might have gone on to enter CR uh, without further therapy um, because of the timing of that, that marrow assessment.
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Eddie. And I, I believe there was actually an abstract at ASH that focused on this very uh, topic, the the prognostic and and kind of uh, utility of a nader marrow day fourteen marrow, you know, whatever you want to call it, and we do know that that certainly at least from that abstract, uh, it seems that there is limited prognostic value from the the day fourteen marrow uh, versus waiting until uh, uh, you know full nader followed by count recovery. Uh, we also do know that that there are patients who. Have somewhat uh, uh, delayed clearance of blasts from their marrow. And, and ultimately, if you do a marrow at time of, of count recovery, they are in a CR. Uh, so I think that's a great point that, that perhaps some of these poor responders uh, uh, were, in fact, patients that may have uh, met criteria for, for a CR uh, uh, had we uh, kind of sat tight and, and not uh, reinduced versus um, uh, assigned them to proceed with transplant. Um, one thing that i'm I'm not aware of from the abstract or otherwise, and and I very much look forward to a full publication that discusses this study is if there was any sort of marrow reassessment done in in the kind of immediate pre-transplant setting because uh, there was, I think, I think the median time to transplant in the in the disc arm was uh, around a month, and it was closer to two months in the uh, in the reinduction arm. Uh, so was there uh, another marrow that happened uh, that that would be able to better tease out some of these things that we have questions about in terms of, was a remission actually achieved prior to transplant, even if a the initial response was termed a poor response?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if it was there, but I, I, I wonder if it will be in the full paper. Um, and I, I wanted to ask uh, uh, both of you actually, what would what thing or things would would you need to, you know, you both sort of said, I come with this this kind of prior and it doesn't quite shift me enough to change away from that prior. Are there one or two things in particular that you that you could change about the design of this trial to make it more persuasive, um, to, to move away from, from from that approach that you take at the moment?
1: You know, I think not necessarily changing the trial itself, but I do think it'd be very helpful to have a sense of, in the re reinduction arm, again, getting back to that, that thought of were there patients, were initially termed poor response, who actually achieved a CR prior to transplant, um, and I think the 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 hard you know we have again we have retrospective data and and with the caveats that come with that um, showing us that that MRD clearance uh, pre transplant is associated with better outcomes, uh, or you know use of a, a higher intensity induction regimen or a conditioning regimen uh, in patients with low levels of MRD may help to then eradicate that that MRD. Uh, again, with that being retrospective, uh, it's hard to kind of definitively then apply those concepts uh, to this trial. I think where things get hard is if you ask you know, several myeloid malignancy doctors what their second line regimen of choice would be in someone who could receive intensive induction chemotherapy, you'd probably get a, a wide array of responses uh, ranging from something like hydac mitoxantrone, which was utilized in this paper, to flag, as as Ashwin had, had mentioned, and even uh, uh, something like azocytidine and venetoclax, and I think that's the part that becomes very hard: is is do you say that the in, you know the the reinduction regimen can be investigator's choice, but then recognizing that that introduces its own kind of set of <laughs> of issues with it. Uh, but but I I think those are the sorts of things that I'd be thinking about modifying in some way. Um, the other thing that I'll mention. Uh, where I do think this this trial has made an impact on me is for my patients who have received uh, previous therapy, and ultimately there are not additional standard therapies or, or there may not be any uh, uh, investigative options for them, but they're otherwise healthy enough to proceed with an allogeneic yeah. stem cell transplant. I think for those patients, this, this study kind of uh, bolsters my resolve to really seriously uh talk about the risks and benefits of transplant and, and have them seen by by one of my colleagues uh, uh in the in the transplant program and potentially still take them to transplant with active disease i think i think that is the one place where where this study has really uh, uh made a mark uh, in terms of my mindset and approach to to.
0: yeah i, I agree with everything anand has said um, i think the only thing we as a myelot group we knew that there are a subset of patients who we can take them to transplant uh, despite with active disease. And this is an active discussion we always have with the transplanters. Uh, But who are these subset of patients, whether we can define them based on the disease biology or their age or their performance status? I think that is something it's not clear yet. I think uh, this is something we always struggle with. Um, I'm hoping um, in the full manuscript uh, format, we will see some of these answers where who are these patients who uh, definitely um, benefited uh, from the transplant despite having active disease going into the transplant. Moving on to the next next abstract, uh, which is the more controversial abstract, which is a topic of hot debate uh, over Twitter is the uh, phase three donor double trial, a single versus double induction with seven plus three containing 60 versus 90 donor-rubicin for newly diagnosed AML. This is a, um, a randomized trial. So just as a background, back in 2009, um, the, the ECOG presented the donor 90 versus 45 which showed a superiority of 90 over 45 in younger patients, age less than 60. And there was also benefit between 60 to 65 as well uh, from the the European uh, study. But there was a controversy about whether 60 is equal to 90 or not. So this study set out to answer that question but i think the authors at the same time wanted to answer one more question which is whether single induction is equivalent to the double induction in united states we do not use the double induction strategy we use only single induction strategy and if they respond by day 14 which is which is once again a controversial question as anand pointed out then we wait for the count recovery and we repeat the marrow around day 28 and day 30 if they are in remission then we proceed with consolidation but this trial they aim to provide randomized evidence of two fundamental questions in standard induction first is is 60 really sufficient for induction or 90 is more efficacious Second, can good responders after 7 plus 3 induction can be spared a second induction strategy. So this is a two-part, two-arm, open level, multi-center prospective randomized phase 3 trial. So they accrued patients between 18 to 65 who are newly diagnosed AML. They received their first cycle of intensive therapy with 7 plus 3 uh, with a stratified with 60 versus 90 and then the response response assessment was made on day 15 if the patient has a blast percentage less than five percent which we define it as a good response this is the first randomization step where good responders were randomized to receive a second intensive therapy which they called arm d versus no second intensive therapy that they call it as AMS. then in if the patient gets 60 um then they gave 60 milligrams of second cycle of induction these are all good responders but if the patient got down on 90 with the first cycle with the second cycle they gave only 45 And the primary endpoint of the second randomization was CR and CR rate after completion of the second cycle of induction. So the median age was 52 uh, in this entire study of 864 patients and 88% were de novo AML. And there was a good distribution between favorable, intermediate, and adverse risk. About 34% were favorable, 46% intermediate, and 17% were adverse risk. Interestingly, in a pre-planned interim analysis, after the first randomization, this is 90 versus 60, the first randomization of 218 patients revealed that there was no statistical difference between the both the arms so they stopped that randomization then they directly went with this second randomization and all the patients got 60 subsequently so only the first 218 patients got 60 versus 90 given there was no difference they they went with the rest of the patients with only 60 and trying to answer the second question they were sort of to answer whether second two cycles of induction is better than one cycle of induction. So, Anand, I will let you answer the results. Do you think that this study answered the the question in the field, whether 60 is better than 90?
1: Uh, great summary for a very complex trial, Ashwin. Uh, uh, and, and these the two-by-two two randomizations are always something that I... I struggle with in terms of kind of being able to wrap my head around, um, and I, I agree. I'm going to I'm going to uh, use your prompt and cheat and focus on 60 versus 90. Uh, again, recognizing that in the United States we we uh, very rarely, uh, if ever, do a double induction, uh, and typically move to consolidation if someone has uh, uh, achieved a remission after the first cycle. So, the non-inferiority analysis that was performed. Uh, is what allowed for um, kind of early uh, uh, early stopping of the randomization that was needed for uh, the sixty versus ninety arm, uh, and at least you know based on the the rules and what we can take away from the abstract, the the pre specified analysis was met. Uh, I would love to hear kind of uh, and again in the in the form of a full manuscript or otherwise we may get kind of more information about the statistical plan around it. Yeah. Um, that being said, uh, I, I think um, ultimately, when you look at the patients uh, and how they did long term, uh, you know, relapse-free survival, uh, overall survival, um, outcomes in in both arms were fairly similar. But again, recognizing that that ultimately, um, several more patients were were randomized uh, to the sixty arm as opposed to the ninety arm, based on the fact that the the original sixty to ninety randomization was uh, was stopped. I think the other thing that we have to think about is, in the era of a- additive therapies to induction chemotherapy, many times our, our decision for what dose of something like Dano to use is actually set by um, what was used in the context of a phase three study. So a good example would be Ratify. Uh, so FLT3 mutated AML, uh, seven and three plus or minus midostaurin, and I believe the dose of of Dano that was used in Ratify was sixty. And because of that, you know, when we when we do treat patients with 7 and 3 with mitostaurin, oftentimes we use the dose of 60. So I think that's a, another interesting consideration in terms of what dose of down to use that, that I think will become uh, more and more pertinent, and more and more relevant uh, as we have other studies that are looking at intensive chemotherapy plus an additive agent.
0: Those are excellent points, um, Anand. Uh, Twitter um, physician by name Todd Lee, I think he pointed out rightly that In the first 218 patients who were randomized to 60 versus 90, um, the response rate was 42% in the 60 and 49% in the 90 arm. So, the absolute difference was 7%. But their non-inferiority margin was 7.5%. Why did they stop preliminary without even meeting the non-inferiority margin? I think that's something uh, we don't have the full manuscript. Obviously, uh, we are eagerly looking forward to the full manuscript, and we'll probably find out more. Uh, like there was no presentation about in the at least in the abstract format about the 95% confidence intervals as well. So a lot of readers are pointing out why did they stop the trial early? I think they should have probably enrolled more patients uh, before they can meet the non-futility margin.
1: Yeah, uh, no, that, that those are all great points, Ashwin. And, and to to do some cross uh, cross pollination and cross advertisement, um, uh, there's a uh, another podcast led by uh, two of the leukemia pharmacists at the University of Michigan called the Wolverine, uh, and they have an entire episode kind of dedicated to to really the ins and outs of this abstract, and they. They bring up many of the, the the excellent points that you did in terms of uh, as a study. Can we what can we truly take away from this, and does it definitively answer uh, the question of ninety versus sixty when it comes to Downer root?
0: Do you think this study will answer the single versus double induction?
1: Great question. Um, uh, again, I, I think the hard part is whether you know being somewhere where where the equipoise really I think. Uh, is is not there in the United States for a, for a double uh, induction kind of the as a field that 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 decision has been made so it it makes it uh, you know results would have to be quite um, quite impressive and and uh, quite definitive uh, to be able to kind of change a practice that that has already kind of been our standard of care uh, um, and certainly I think the other question that then comes in is again the fact that this has been uh, the 60 versus 90 matters because, you know, if, if uh, you know, moving forward, if everyone's receiving 60, uh, you know, those that get a double induction, there's always that that point that can be brought up of, well, you know, if, if they receive that dose of 90 up front, uh, how would that uh, impact things? And and does that change your appetite for a double induction if someone's already receiving uh, the 90 milligram per meter squared dose of donor
0: moving on to the next next abstract i think this is a study i liked a lot um this was a reduced venetoclax exposure this is a retrospective study uh, from the french colleagues um, where they restricted venetoclax exposure to seven days versus the uh, 28 days what we usually treat here uh, which was the yla study where uh, patients get, got 28 days of venetoclax uh, with in combination with seven days of azocytidine. This is a retrospective study where they looked at 82 patients got seven plus seven, which is seven days of venetoclax and seven days of azacitidine. And they compared with the 28 day cycle of venetoclax. I think this is something we always struggle with, what is the optimal duration of venetoclax? Because we know from clinical practice, as well as a lot of studies being published, which showed that not every every patient will tolerate 28 days of venetoclax. We always dose reduce to either 21 days, 14 days, based on their tolerance, as well as cytopenias. I think this study eloquently point out that probably we are over treating a lot of patients with 28 days of venetoclax and giving them maybe 7 days of venetoclax is equivalent to the 28 days uh, based on the results they presented. Curious to know your thoughts um, on the uh, overall response rate, which was very equivalent. Understandably, this is a retrospective study. And uh, we have to take with a grain of salt. Um, this is not a randomized study. This is a retrospective with a limited cohort of patients. But I think, once again, raises a very important point is what is the optimal duration of venetoclax?
1: Uh, and and I believe the the, the patients they looked at, uh, Ashwin, all 82 patients had received this so-called 7 plus 7, uh, 7 days of, of uh, HMA and 7 days of venetoclax. I, you know, I think this is very encouraging, uh, trying to Better understand how can we get away with with less venetoclax exposure, and are we potentially overtreating with venetoclax? One thing that I would love to know about is how was the decision made for these patients to only receive seven days of vanetoclax? Because uh, because from my understanding of the abstract, again, this was a retrospective analysis. Uh, this does not, um, uh, as far as I could tell, this was not a prospective study that was was conducted. That was that was enrolling patients on the seven plus seven uh, regimen. Uh, so I think that's one thing that that really jumps out in my mind is is retrospectively this is all very reassuring. This this tells us that uh, response rates seem to be um, about equivalent when when comparing uh, them to the uh, Aza plus Ven arm of the uh, of the A protocol. Uh, median overall survival uh, was somewhere in the neighborhood of, of 14 months, which again was very similar to what we saw in Biale-A. Um, So, so I think really this this study helps to provide the sort of of bedrock or foundation that you would need to potentially look at this in a prospective and potentially even randomized way. Um, you know, I, I think this this study gives me enough information to think that there really is equipoise when it comes to should we uh, uh be treating patients with with you know somewhere in the neighborhood of 21 to 28 days of venetoclax that being said you know when we think about studies uh where where we're looking to do less uh, uh those can be very hard studies to to design and and enroll on because i think oftentimes we run into the issue where we treating physicians and 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 uh, perhaps even patients have have made up their mind about about not necessarily wanting to be uh, um uh randomized to to an arm that may receive less menettaclax exposure. Um, but certainly for for older very frail patients, I think seven plus seven is is something that, that could be considered. Um, one thing that stood out to me was I believe the uh, the median age uh, of patients enrolled on this was still right around 75 years. Uh, so it would have been very interesting to me if we would have found that this was in fact a, a median age or median population of, of patients that were in their 80s, you know, or, or something like that. Uh, but, but at least on paper, this seems to be a, a patient population that's very similar to by um, A. And, and again, I, my mind keeps coming back to that question of, of, how ultimately was the decision made to treat these patients with seven days of venetoclax as opposed to um, a longer duration of venetoclax with that initial cycle of therapy?
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point. Hopefully, we're going to see it in the full manuscript format. Um, I think Eddie has a question. Go ahead, Eddie.
2: Well, you actually answered both of my questions, which was around selection criteria and around um, age. So. You picked me for those two, which is is great. But I did want to make a comment, which is generally about, you know, dose finding with novel agents and the challenges around running kind of less is more style trials. In addition to the challenges you mentioned about kind of patient and um, physician priors going into these trials, it's even harder to get them funded.
0: Um, For the the interest of time, uh, we'll talk about the menin inhibitors, which are also a hot topic at ASH. And there were two inhibitors trials that were presented. The first one was the Augment 101, uh, which is uh, from Syndax Oncology, a drug named uh, Revuminib, and both MLL Rearranged as well as uh, NPM1 Mutant AML. And there was another menin-inhibitor trial, um, uh, the trial is COMET001 from Cura Oncology, uh, where um they present the phase one phase two data uh, the first in human study ziftominib also known as ko539 in patients with relapsed refractory aml um, with both ml rearranged as well as um, npm1 mutant aml so the first question is is there any difference between these two different menin inhibitors is, are we going to see, based on the response, excellent response rate we saw in both these trials, are we going to see the movement of these many inhibitors into upfront induction, like adding to seven plus three or adding to the more intensive therapies?
1: Um, and and I, I will say, I, I don't know mechanistically um, whether there's a significant difference between uh, the two menin inhibitors that you mentioned uh, uh revuminib or, or zifdominib. what I will say you know that that I think um kind of impacts my interpretation of, of the abstracts is um the the syndex compound revuminib, ultimately there were closer to 70 patients that were that were treated and presented on uh, whereas the other abstract uh, uh was a little uh, a little earlier in its data presentation it was about 30 patients in total um, that being said you know cr rates of somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 30%, and we're talking, you know, uh, uh, not CRs with any caveats, kind of the traditional CR criteria in what was a very heavily pretreated patient population. So I believe um, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of of a median of three to four previous lines of of therapy. That's something that's incredibly compelling. Uh, That being said, uh, even if you kind of look at those patients that achieved um, a response, the median duration of response was still well less than a year. Uh, so the thought then becomes much like you were saying, Ashwin, is is if the, if these agents are to be used in a uh, a non uh, a non uh, first line setting um, or as a single agent, really the the hope would be if we're looking for durable responses that that they likely need to be serving uh, serving as a bridge to something uh, like an allogeneic stem cell transplant or perhaps in someone who's previously had a transplant. Uh, maybe, maybe that that drug is enough for them to to regain their chimerism or to receive a Dli or something else along with it. Um, however, I think um I, I agree that where where there may be more of a uh, an impact is the investigation of these agents in the in the frontline setting. Uh, and whether that be with a um, uh, a lesser intensity regimen like HMA Ventoclax for the appropriate patient population. Or whether that be with uh, with intensive induction chemotherapy, because I think the thought would be is is where we've you know historically run into issues is uh, that issue of plasticity and lineage switch when it comes to MLL rearranged leukemias, uh, shifting from myeloid to lymphoid or vice versa, um, and perhaps having the the menin inhibitor this differentiation agent, um, uh, and and again I I'm not aware of any any data that's quite looked at the the patterns of progression or relapse on patients that have been treated with menin inhibitors. But I think that's something that that'd be, that'd be very interesting to to hear about and learn about is, is with the use of a of a more targeted agent, do we not necessarily run into those same issues uh, uh, as pertaining to, to lineage switch, uh, which oftentimes fuels the the relapse or progression in, in uh, MLL rearranged acute leukemias.
0: Yeah, all excellent points, Anand. I think one other point, although you know, like you said eloquently, Augment One Hundred One had seventy patients whereas Comet had like 30 patients, so very limited numbers, obviously Augment had more. Um, but looking at the response rate of MLL Rearranged versus NPM1 Mutant, I've seen a pattern where in the Augment 101, which is the use of Reviminab, um they had more responses in MLL Rearranged versus NPM1 Mutant whereas Comet 101, um, which also included both groups of patients, but they had a better responses with NPM1 mutants versus uh, MLL rearrange. Do you think that uh, going forward, we're going to see a more differences um, in those specific subset of populations? I know it's very hard to answer right now, given it's a phase one, phase two data, uh, but I'm curious to know your thoughts.
1: Yeah, no, it, it's a great question, Ashwin, and I'm not sure I have uh, uh, any sort of meaningful answer for you. I, I think there's a practical consideration that comes to mind, which is the rate of FLT3 co-mutation with NPM1 mutations is is fairly high, uh, and uh, I know that um, you know the, the rate of, of FLT3 mutations in conjunction with MLL rearrangements is is not nearly as high. So I think from a practical consideration we certainly may may run into the the question of you know when you have NPM1 and FLT3 co-mutated patients and you're thinking about frontline investigation whether you're going to be looking at strategies that incorporate a FLT3 inhibitor versus a menin inhibitor whereas in in someone with a with an MLL rearrangement but no FLT3 co-mutation uh, with that being much less common the, the road ahead in terms of investigation is, is perhaps a little a little uh, easier, a little more straightforward. Um, so that that's the one thing that comes to mind uh, when thinking about NPM1 mutated acute leukemias versus uh, MLL rearranged acute leukemias that that may impact how we investigate these therapies moving forward, um, uh, particularly just using again the example of, of the ratified trial, you know, so for intensive induction chemotherapy uh, in the United States, our current standard of care is seven and three with midostaurin. Uh, so if you have someone who's NPM1 and, and FLT3 co-mutated, uh, frequently those patients are, are treated based on the presence of that FLT3 mutation.
0: Now moving on to MDS well. So I think the one um, important uh, abstract was the IMERGE phase 2 study, which is the mtl which is the first-in-class telomerase inhibitor. Uh, it is a global phase 2, phase 3 study. Um, In low-risk MDS who are refractory to ESAs, um, erythropodic stimulating agents, where currently we do not have any standard of care. So this is a huge unmet area where they studied this particular medication, which is a first in class, um, which is administered um, as a two hour infusion every four weeks. Um, at the dose of 7.5 milligrams per kg and the primary endpoint they looked at was the eight-week transfusion independence rate and the secondary endpoints were 24 week and as well as um, overall survival and progression-free survival they accrued a total of 57 patients I know that we recently also had a press release of phase 3 and uh, there's a lot of debate right now in the mds field that this medication will be likely be approved how do you see this medication in the clinical development as well as uh, whether uh, do you think that this medication will be fda approved
1: yeah it, it, it's a great question ashwin and and what i will you know what i'll say is it, it's very interesting cuz uh, Imitelstat has had a long road when it comes to to myeloid malignancy so you know, there was a new england journal paper sometime in the mid 2010s uh, uh, that looked at its use um, in in uh, et uh, and i think we the the big concern at that time was uh lft elevations uh which was seen almost uniformly in, in patients that were treated and i think over the last several years you know investigators have been able to to refine the dosing of imetelstat to really uh, um, reduce that that impact of, of potential adverse events finding the populations that there's efficacy in, so in the current field, when we're thinking about lower risk MDS, particularly where anemia is the predominant cytopenia, we have our ESAs, uh, we have luspatercept for the very specific subset of ring sideroblasts, and and even within that, those with SF3B1 mutations tend to particularly benefit from luspatercept. And then, but but there's still a huge chunk of the pie, you know, when we're thinking about lower risk MDS that that ultimately does not fall into that bucket. And even there, the the rate of transfusion independence was somewhere in the neighborhood of of you know thirty thirty eight percent, I believe, in the in the phase three study. So, I you know being able to to move the the needle with the the phase two data that was presented uh, in terms of transfusion independence that was seen somewhere in the neighborhood of thirty percent of patients is is a, a, a huge huge thing. And again, uh, you know, not necessarily wanting to to commit to anything by press release alone. (laughs) But but I think with the primary endpoint, which again, I believe was was transfusion independence, kind of as was was specified uh, in the phase three loose battercep study, um, I I do think that 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 um should hopefully, uh, you know, as we hear more about the the full phase three study, uh that that we'd be looking at adding another another drug to the armamentarium. Um, there's also a phase three study of Imatetelstat going on in JAK inhibitor exposed myelofibrosis. And for that, actually, the primary endpoint is is overall survival, uh, which we very rarely see as a primary endpoint when it comes to to MPN specifically. But I do think imitelstat is a is a medication that that may become uh, kind of part of our our standard of care uh, repertoire, uh, uh, not just in in MDS. Uh, but perhaps uh, even in 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 myelofibrosis depending on on how that phase 3 study shakes out
0: yeah. the side effect profile and there was significant uh, neutropenia as well as thrombocytopenia reported both in the phase 2 as well as the phase 3 studies i think especially that it would be important in this specific population where they are low risk mds and only uh, are transfusion dependent and uh, yes you are improving their anemia by with this medication but at the same time there is almost close to 50 percent grade two grade three neutropenia and thrombocytopenia i think that is that would be very important uh, i think risk which i think the patients would um we need to uh, educate the patients very well if this medication is going to be fda approved
1: yeah i think that's an excellent point where where the the end goal obviously not to trade one cytopenia for another right. and and certainly for these these patients with with otherwise relatively well-preserved counts uh you know then exposing them to the risks associated with with neutropenia or, or thrombocytopenia and and i do think w- that's not you know just to to talk a little bit more about about the, the phase three immatel study certainly we know that the primary endpoint was transfusion independence I think that's one of the studies where, as longer follow-up happens, uh, being able to get a sense of where overall survival ends up is uh, is very important, because uh, because we've certainly seen, you know, uh, whatever our efficacy marker is, um, uh, whether it be transfusion independence uh, or otherwise, uh, may not uh, always have a robust correlation with with uh, overall survival.
0: All right. Um... Moving on to the next abstract, Um, we will switch gears in the interest of time and talk about myelofibrosis. Um, uh, Anand, we have a special interest in uh, both MPNs as well as MPNs progress to acute myeloid leukemia. We've seen a fourth JAK inhibitor uh, called momilotinib which was um they presented the randomized data of versus danazole in symptomatic anemic patients with myelofibrosis who were previously treated with JAK inhibitors we also saw the uh, the final publication format this was published three weeks ago in lancet journal can you talk a little bit about the mechanism of action of mamelotinib and why it was specifically studied in this population and how it differs from other JAK inhibitors?
1: Yeah, um, so as, as you said, Ashwin, we, we now have uh, three FDA-approved uh, JAK inhibitors, ruxolitinib, fedratinib, and pacritinib, uh, with now phase three data uh, that's been uh, presented both in abstract form and, and now in a full manuscript form. Uh, for momolotinib. So momolotinib uh, is a JAK inhibitor. Uh, So it acts on JAK1 and JAK2. Uh, It also is an inhibitor of ACVR, uh, which is implicated in production of hepcidin. Uh, We do know that hepcidin is implicated in the anemia that we see with myelofibrosis. And and with inhibition of ABCR and subsequent uh, um, reduction in hepcidin levels, uh, we restore some degree of normal iron homeostasis, Uh, which can then lead to potential improvement in anemia. So with that in mind, the phase three study that was developed for momolotinib uh, really focused on this specific question of myelofibrosis, previous JAK inhibitor, and hemoglobin less than 10, along with splenomegaly. And patients were randomized to receiving momolotinib versus danazole, with the primary endpoint uh, being uh, interestingly, the primary endpoint was symptom control by by TSS, um, and then there were um, additional kind of test order rules, uh, amongst which uh, transfusion independence was one of them, uh, and that was actually a non non inferiority testing that was done for that. So, the phase three study uh, momelotinib met its primary endpoint versus danazol. Uh, with about a quarter of patients achieving a 50% reduction in their symptom score uh, versus uh, around 9% of patients in the Danazol group. Um, and then um, in both, you know, in, in the uh, arms, about 30% of patients achieved transfusion independence with momolotinib, uh, whereas it was 20% in the Danazol arm, uh, which met uh, the criteria for non-inferiority. Uh, additional testing for superiority was not met. Um, and And really... We think, you know, in the, in the somewhat near future, that momolotinib will, will hopefully be another approved option for us in the use, this term that, that's being put uh, put out there more and more, cytopenic myelofibrosis. So we have pacritinib that kind of has its niche within significant and severe thrombocytopenia and myelofibrosis, and momolotinib may then occupy the niche of myelofibrosis uh, with anemia.
0: Thanks, Anand. Uh, I think one other uh, abstract that was presented from um, by Stephen O uh, from WashU, where um, he showed uh, that pacritinib, uh, which is the third FDA-approved uh, JAK inhibitor we have for myelofibrosis, also hits ACVR1, um, perhaps more potent than momilotinib. And uh, they are also looking at um, if this in improves anemia and we have to see the uh, data um, regarding anemia uh, and I think there was a couple of you know, papers published recently looking at retrospectively on a few set of patients to see how pecoritinib um, uh, improves uh, hemoglobin in myelofibrosis patients. But if in a scenario, let's say that this is both these medications are FDA approved for that, How do you sequence, like, do you start, if you see a patient with anemia, uh, in a myelofibrosis patient, do you use first or do you use macritinifers? How do do you see uh, a sequence of agents in the future? I know it's a very hypothetical question, but I think it's a very practical question we're gonna face in the clinics.
1: Yes, no, I I agree wholeheartedly. and uh, I can't remember in what journal, but but I will say for folks that want to really dig deep into this, an excellent review by, by Brady Stein, who's uh, one of the MPN experts at Northwestern University, uh, is wholly focused on this question, kind of how do we sequence um, jack inhibitors in the era of several approved uh, therapies in myelofibrosis. Ruxolitinib has been around for over a decade. It's been FDA approved. Uh, we know its toxicities, its efficacy, you know, inside out. In general, I typically still lean towards utilization of ruxolitinib and those with a fairly well-preserved platelet count. Uh, and by that, I mean a platelet count of over 100,000. Uh, and then um, also with with uh, even if there uh, if there is anemia, you know, if the hemoglobin is, is say, somewhere in that 8 to 10 range, uh, I would still be thinking about using ruxolitinib. Uh, now, you know, uh, when thinking about momolotinib, so there were two phase three studies, Simplify One and Simplify Two. Uh, and, and if you look at those studies, you know, momolotinib does seem to have similar rates or at least in the same ballpark uh, when you think about spleen response compared to something like ruxolitinib. But I think the the comfort with rux is, is a hard thing to turn away from. And I think in general, ruxolitinib is still my preferred JAK inhibitor. Uh, as long as I'm not running into someone with severe anemia or severe thrombocytopenia, uh, uh, at which time I would probably reach for pacritinib uh, for those with severe thrombocytopenia, uh, or you know, if if momelotinib uh, ultimately becomes FDA approved, perhaps reaching for momolotinib uh, for those with severe anemia right off the bat. Um, but again, we're, we're we'd be uh, kind of when you're thinking of the letter of the law of momentum, these were all Jak inhibitor exposed patients. Uh, with with momolotinib being looked at in a in a non-first line setting. So I think that that does bear repeating. And the other thought would be uh, you start ruxolitinib, and if uh, there is a, a significant decrease in the hemoglobin, and if you're having to really adjust the dose of ruxolitinib down, uh, then perhaps that's the time point where you think about switching to something like momolotinib.
0: Any particular adverse events you are concerned about in -in momelotinib or in the study that presented at ASH that jumps out to you saying that this is something um, I I need to watch out for, I need to monitor for?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So when looking at kind of the the, um, adverse events that we're seeing in either the momelotinib arm versus the the danazole arm, uh, the main kind of toxicity seen in the momelotinib arm that weren't seen uh, nearly as frequently in the in the danazol arm uh, were primarily uh, GI uh, toxicities and, and fatigue. Um, there was a signal for perhaps uh, slightly worsened thrombocytopenia in the in the momolotinib arm versus the danazol arm. Again, uh, you know, not necessarily statistically significant, but but something to be aware of. I think in general, just thinking about the worsening of other cytopenias. Uh, is, is the thing that, that jumps out to, to my mind.
2: I wanted to ask um, a question that, that may come from my naivety as a lymphoid person or may come from my naivety as an Australian. But I, I wanted your thoughts on on how regularly you use Danazole clinically and what you think of it as a control arm in, in this setting. Just because I haven't seen it used. but
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great question and I, you know, so Danazole does have uh, a fair amount of evidence behind it in, for use in in improving anemia, specifically for for myelofibrosis. It's sometimes used in bone marrow failure syndromes as well. I think I think danazol was a very reasonable control arm for this study, based on the fact that that kind of what was being looked at were were patients with myelofibrosis that had uh, anemia, and again, that was defined as a hemoglobin less than 10. And patients that were already jack inhibitor uh, exposed. So, so with with kind of those two things in mind, I and we know, you know, I think the the part that that you have to think about and and maybe kind of give pause to is is the primary endpoint being reduction in total symptoms score. Uh, that being said, you know, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of I think ten percent of patients treated with danazol still had that TSS fifty improvement. But I think that, you know, in terms of the the control arm, I think it's a reasonable control arm. In terms of the primary endpoint, I think that could be maybe where where there would be some some quibbles in the sense of we know that JAK inhibitors have an anti-inflammatory effect. I, I'm not aware of that same sort of anti-inflammatory effect with Danazol, uh, and with that being the case, uh, uh, then expecting uh, an improvement in the uh, in the total symptom burden with with a JAK inhibitor like momelotinib.
0: Thank you Thank you so much, Anand, for this excellent discussions on some of the uh, abstracts presented at ASH. Obviously we didn't cover all the abstracts, but uh, in the interest of time, uh, we covered the few abstracts and we hope to bring you back uh, for future episodes on uh, myelofibrosis as well as other myeloproliferate neoplasms. Um, hope to have more discussions.
1: Thanks so much, Ashwin, uh, and and Eddie. Thanks so much for the excellent questions throughout. Uh, it really, really was my my pleasure joining you all and getting a chance to kind of piece through these these abstracts. And um, yeah, really looking forward to to hopefully being able to to share a Zoom screen with you all again. Yeah.
2: Thanks, Alan. Thanks so much. <music>